0: This week, I was doing a, a little reading in, in Russian philosophy. Um, you always got to love when your preacher opens up a sentence with that. I was reading Russian philosophy. So, um, but it was really actually pretty good. Um, and so, let me just put you a quote from a book I've been reading called The Confession by a guy named Leo Tolstoy. Uh, it's fascinating what he has to say here. So, about halfway through the book, this is what he says. The question which in my 50th year had brought me to the notion of suicide. Now, just in case many of you don't know who Leo, Tol, uh, Leo Tolstoy is, he, he wrote… Um, War and Peace, Anna Karenina, he was a literary giant, famous, uh, wealthy, powerful, had women, well, I mean, I know that picture doesn't look like what I'm describing, but he was, uh, this was Leo Tolstoy, okay? And so for him to say at 50, thinking suicide is a pretty uh, amazing thing. So he says that the notion of suicide at the age of 50 was the simplest of all questions, lying in the soul of every man from the undeveloped child to the wisest sage a question without an answer to which one cannot live. What will come of what I am doing now and may do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Otherwise expressed, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life which will not be destroyed by the inevitable death awaiting me? Wow, we'll get back to Leo's quote in a little bit. This morning is our fifth uh, message in our series, One Act of Righteousness, where we're looking at the saving act of Jesus Christ, and this morning we're focusing in on His resurrection. Now, as, as Adam alluded to, um, in, in churches when you hear about the resurrection being preached, there's usually two things that are true. And Number one, it's Easter Sunday, right? And number two, the sermon runs along the lines of trying to convince you or persuade you that the resurrection is in fact true. Now, this isn't bad. I mean, if you've been here for some of our Resurrection Sundays, I've done this myself. Pastors do this all the time because we recognize that the whole of the Christian faith, the whole foundation of the Christian faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on the singular fact of Him coming back from the grave, or didn't He? Now, this isn't just my opinion. This is what the Bible actually teaches, Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 and 19, and Paul makes that exact case. In fact, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, okay, if the resurrection is true, then no other justification for Christianity is necessary. I mean, if Jesus came back from the grave, we don't need to justify this at all. We're done. On the other hand, if the resurrection is false... Then no other justification for Christianity could be sufficient. So it all rises and falls on the question of just did Jesus come back from the grave? It's not an understatement to say that without Christianity or without the resurrection, you simply do not have Christianity. But as Tolstoy's quote implies, along with just about every existential philosopher and psychologist I know of from history and today, either from Soren Kierkegaard, Friedrich Nietzsche, to Sartre, to Rallo May, um, Irvin Yalom, James Bugenthal, without the resurrection, life itself is meaningless. As a matter of fact, life is full of absurdity. Now, this morning I'm not going to offer an apologetic or a reason for the resurrection. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to discuss the significance of the resurrection. In other words, I'm not going to tell you why it's possible, right? I'm just going to explain what it means for you and I. And, and, and I know most of you here, but some of you I don't know, so I don't want to assume that you are a Christian. We're, we're, we're really lucky to have every Sunday people who don't agree with Christianity with us and, and are just listening to things, check things out. And so I would say that even if you leave today and you don't believe in the resurrection, I would hope when you leave today, you would at least want the resurrection to be true. And you would want it to be true for the same reasons I believe it to be true, right? Right? and there are these four reasons. You should want the resurrection to be true because the resurrection provides dignity and beauty to life. The resurrection provides the answer to the most important questions about life and death, and because the resurrection does those two, the resurrection removes the absurdity of life. I'll explain what I mean by that when I get there, and because of that, it removes the fear of death. So, and the answer to these questions are not found in most places we look for our answers. You're not going to get this from Oprah. You're not going to get this from Dr. Phil, right? You're not going to get this from from Joe Rogan or Joe Biden or Donald Trump. You're not going to get this from the CDC, the BLM, or the GOP. The answer for the most important questions central to our understanding of meaning come from the man at the center of history, and that's Jesus Christ, So, wherever you might be on the the cultural divide, whether you're right or left, progressive or conservative, right, we all can agree that we don't have all the answers that we need for society, and that's why we have all the views. But Jesus Christ at the center of society provides those answers. Now, this morning, we're not going to focus on His life, because we talked about that two weeks ago in in His sinless life. We're not going to focus on His death, because Jordan discussed that last week. But this morning, we're going to talk about his life after his death, the resurrection. Now, in the time that I have, about 25 minutes, uh, that's not much to unpack each of these issues, which themselves could be an entire series. So, I want to read a passage of Scripture that made me start thinking about this last Sunday afternoon that carries a lot of the conceptual weight, but the reason I want to read it, and if you have a Bible, look, go to Luke 24, is that it's, it's one of those phrases I, I often see in the Bible That convinced me that this is real writing here, because if you were faking this stuff, you wouldn't include these kinds of mundane details that we often just overlook. And that's the fact that Jesus ate fish. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. Now, if you, you got, we you got some young kids here. Kids, I want to help you dial into the sermon today. So, I would love for you to draw a picture of Jesus eating fish, right? Jesus eating fish. Um, or the broader theme about how Jesus, how the cross, the symbol of Christianity, crushes death. And if neither of those are good, I know moms don't want their kids writing about pictures of something crushing death. You can write Jesus, draw Jesus eating fish or draw the balloon right up on the ceiling right there. One of those things they'll do, okay? So that's how you can keep us somewhat engaged. <laughs> yeah, as I was looking up, I thought, oh, well, how did that happen? I guess when we design big vaulted church ceilings, we didn't think about mylar helium balloons, right? That'll be up there when we finally get to gather as a church again, probably. All right, so let me get to our text. Luke chapter 24, verse 36, and I'm going to read down to 43. And just to set the context, this is after Jesus was crucified, and the rumor mill is spinning, Jesus is alive, but yet the disciples haven't seen Him. And so, there's there's this rumor going out there that Jesus is alive, but they haven't seen it. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, because he would have still had the, the, the nail-pierced hands and feet, the marks on them. See that as myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you here anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. And here's one of those details that I know this is authentic because why would someone think to write this? Luke mentions Jesus saying, hey, why are you afraid? I'm not a spirit. I'm flesh and blood. As a matter of fact, give me some fish. I'd like to eat that. And Jesus eats fish in front of them. My first point is that the resurrection provides dignity and beauty to life. Now, now we know that, the, that Luke would not have written this because at the time then, and I talked about a, bit, a bit about this, not this past Easter, but the Easter before that, every view of the life after was not physical. As a matter of fact, the physical life was burdensome. It was hard. It was painful. It was full of suffering. So, the view that once we die and if there's an afterlife, we're set free from the difficulty of the physical body. So there's no way Luke would have made this up, that Jesus came back in a physical form because everyone back there thought there's no way the blessed life could be physical because this physical world's full of so much suffering and pain. But yet Luke records that Jesus says, I'm not a spirit, I'm flesh and bones. Implication, like you are, as a matter of fact, give me something to eat. In His incarnation... Like His incarnation, in His resurrection, Jesus has a physical body. The resurrection life is a physical life. We are not floating around, some spirits floating on clouds, ambiguous kind of thing. Jesus says, it's flesh, it's bone." Jesus didn't take on our physical form and then got rid of it after the job was done, kind of like we might do when you come home from a a long day at the office. You want to undo that tie because it's uncomfortable or kick off your work heels because they don't feel very good or take off your dirty construction clothes, whatever it might be. Jesus didn't do that after he got the job done. All right, I'm done with this physical frame. Get rid of that and now I can be back to being my spiritual self. This is so much better. No. In his glorified resurrected body, It was just like the physical body you and i have right now just without sin friends what this means is that the physical world our world aside from the sin that has destroyed it is the kind of world that god intends that we inhabit forever eternal life is not some mystical spiritual and amorphous existence It is a physical existence, a material existence in a world just like this one, but made new, redeemed, remade, renewed. And one reason we know that, if you're a note taker, write down Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, when God created His physical world, the original design, it was physical, it was material, and He said it was very good. As a matter of fact, both the beginning and end of the Bible reminds us of the physical world that God made was good. In the beginning, the very first Bible verse in the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. Go all the way to the end of the Bible, and what do we see? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So, God's intention is a beautiful, physical, material world. Eternity is a physical eternity. Jesus ate fish. He says, I'm not a spirit that doesn't have flesh and bones like this. Friends, what this means is that our stewardship, not just individually, but corporately as a church in this life, of this life, matters. The way we live is an example of what the resurrected life that Christ promises can provide. So, what I do with my life, the way I steward my time, the way we live in community matters because it's an example of what the resurrected life and the eternal life is going to look like. In some ways, this is a typical paradox of Christianity. It's totally unlike what we understand, but at the same time, very much like what we understand. And, you know, when I talk about these things with people, then the question comes out, and we'll say, well, will I, will I be… Uh, will I be older or will I be younger? Will will I be beautiful or will I be homely? Will I be tall or short, fat, skinny? I mean, what would I look like? I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would think that that would be part of the equation. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know what the Bible says. In that frame, in that state, we will be beautiful. And I don't mean like physically attractive, right? That's not what I mean. I mean the kind of beauty when you see something that's good and right and true. You get arrested by the beauty of something like that. That's what I mean by we'll be beautiful. We will be fearless. We will be strong. And we're going to open Scripture in a little bit just to show you kind of where we pull this from. We won't know loneliness or worry or fear. We won't know guilt, grief, or regret. Because all those things have Passed let me take a look to a couple of passages. We could expand a lot of this, but I just want to show you a little bit of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, who will, who will speak of Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. How's He going to do that? By the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Whatever these bodies will be like, we know, A, they're going to be glorious because the same power that's able to subject everything in the universe to the lordship of Christ is the same power that transforms our lowly bodies. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor It is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And then finally, one last verse I can take us to this morning: for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. And how will we be imperishable? And we will, we shall be changed. Now, I want you to think: how does this connect to what I said before? Have you ever seen uh, fruit that has perished? Right, it's ugly, it's squishy, it smells right. So, in agricultural society, imagine what a pair, peri- something perishable, would look like. We're not going to be that way. We'll be a strong, vibrant strength and health. We shall be changed for this perishable body. Perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So the resurrection provides dignity and beauty to life because it's not like when we have that new thing in eternal life, it's completely different, so whatever happens now doesn't matter. No, we actually give living testimony to what resurrected life looks like right now. That's part of the job of the church. So that people look upon the church and say, see, that's a glimpse of what eternity might be like. Even though the, the, the one downside is, though, they are failing, our outward, we're, we have the same things, perishable bodies, we're weak, all those things frail, yet we still live for the things that matter because we know without sin, things will be very different but very much the same. Okay, I got to move on. Second point, the resurrection provides the answer to the question of life and death. Friends, if, if you, like me, have been to a funeral, you feel like you've been to one too many funerals. And if you are able to kind of observe what's going on, how people are in that moment, there is almost a universal feeling that this is somehow terribly wrong. And I don't mean wrong as in this is an injustice, as if your friend who deceased or your loved one who deceased was hit by a a drunk driver in a car accident. I don't mean that kind of wrong. I mean wrong as in the whole notion of death itself shouldn't be here that what you are experiencing right now is not the way it's supposed to be, that it's not right. Well, you've all felt that. I, if you've been at a funeral, I have felt that. That, that Christian and non-Christian funerals. And we've accepted death as normal as a matter of statistics, right? I mean, statistically speaking, everyone dies, so it's normal but we cannot shake the feeling that somehow this is not normal at all when we think of it from a perspective of design. In other words, it's normal because it happens all the time, so we accept it. But we can't shake the feeling that this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not normal by design. And that's because it's not. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But friends, without the resurrection, which is actually only found in the Christian worldview, I don't know what other alternatives there are out there. to to account for that feeling. That that feeling that that Christianity answers that great question that why, why we have death, and yet death is not the end. That's the question everyone's asking, that there is something they're experiencing that is viscerally real, but they can't shake the feeling that it's not supposed to be this way. Only the resurrection can answer the question of why there is death, but death is not the end. That's just the reality of it. Jesus died, and so because of that we can live. Because Jesus lives, we can die and not stay dead. In every system, friends, that tries to grapple with these ultimate questions, death consumes life. In Christianity, however, life consumes death. And because the resurrection brings dignity and beauty to life because it answers the questions of life and death. It also removes the absurdity of life and the fear of death. So what do I mean by this weird phrase, the absurdity of life? This comes from the the, the philosophers who say, this is the tension we feel, that life should have um, meaning and purpose even though we know there is no true meaning and purpose in life. That sense of absurdity, that's what they call the absurdity of life. We feel like there should be meaning and purpose, even though we all know there is no meaning and purpose. This is exactly Tolstoy's point in his quote. If we all simply die in the end, why bother with anything we do? It's it's like rearranging chairs on the the deck of the Titanic. Well, yeah, it'll look nice, but does it really matter? If our existence is a biological accident, if Darwin is right and life is just plodding along one mutation after the next mutation, then why should we care or any of us should work for justice? Why should we alleviate the suffering in the world? Why should we care about the poor or people who are treated fairly and justly? Why should we care about any of these things when at the end, no one will be around to remember or care? Why should I strive to be good, to be kind rather than cruel, to be generous rather than greedy? Then when I die and those who love me die, no one will remember me and no one will care. I might as well not have even existed. That's the stark reality that Tolstoy and anyone honestly asking things that matter have to face. No matter how much I serve, no matter how much I struggle or sacrifice or give, it's all like a rehearsal for a performance I won't be around to, to give. And so what they say is, it's absurd that we should care so much in a universe that doesn't. That is the logical conclusion of a world that doesn't have the resurrection. Well, friends, because Jesus' resurrection is a reality, there is infinite hope and infinite reason to pour our lives out in these very ways. I want to quote to you. It's a little bit long, but he says it so good I couldn't get better on it. Uh, An Oxford scholar, N.T. Wright, in his book, For All God's Worth, True Worship and the Calling of the Church. Listen to what he says because it makes the point spot on. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won out. If we deny the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection and take it only to mean that Jesus was raised in a spiritual sense, which which actually a lot of people make that argument, right? Why do we care about the facts? Can't we just believe have personal faith? That's what counts. Wright says this, no, if that's what's going on, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it's not about warming our hearts. The resurrection means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we as Christians will work and plan and with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus Christ over all spheres of life. Take away the resurrection, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take away the resurrection, and Sigmund Freud was right to say that Christianity is nothing but wish fulfillment. Take away the resurrection, and Nietzsche was right when he said it was just for wimps. But the resurrection removes the absurdity of life, and because it does that, it also removes the fear of death. So, 700 years before Jesus came back from the grave, listen to what Isaiah the prophet would write. In Isaiah 25, verse 8, speaking of God, He shall swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, if you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah, this is confusing, because what does this have to do with anything going on at the time? And if you remember, Assyria was about to come down and destroy the people of God for their disobedience. But all through the prophet's writings, he gives these zingers about what's happening now is really just a shadow of what's happening in the material world. Our disobedience to God is leading to consequences. And in their case, here come the consequences, but it's not always going to be this way. So, Isaiah was speaking to the situation then and speaking to God's ultimate rescue and redemption of these people. And he says, God's going to swallow up death. And notice, I love what he says, and he's going to wipe away all your tears, and he's going to take away the reproach of his people. So, all these are packed with hints of the gospel. But listen to the way one of the most famous rabbis interprets this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and here Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and he's putting a bit of a spin on it, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, Paul interprets Isaiah's prophecy of God swallowing up death forever as fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how God fulfills Isaiah 25. How does God swallow up death forever? He did it in the resurrection of His Son. One last verse, you'll recognize some of the themes from Isaiah here, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Playwright Eugene O'Neill wrote one of the most eccentric plays back in the 1920s. It was only performed once at the full scale in 1928 over at the Pasadena Playhouse. It was called Lazarus Laughed. And in it, O'Neill created a, a, obviously it's a fictional um, drama and comedy about what it would have been like as Lazarus clearly would have been one of the leaders in the early church. And in Act 3, Caligula, the emperor of Rome, is persecuting the church, and Lazarus won't recant. As a matter of fact, they call them the laughing Lazarus. And and there he is standing in front of Caligula, and he is infuriated by Lazarus, and finally says, Lazarus, if you don't recant your faith, I will have you executed. I'm going to have you killed. I'm going to have you put to death. And Lazarus just doubles over in laughter. He just busts the gut. And everyone in the, play, in the scene is shocked because here's an old man laughing at the most powerful man, Caligula, on the planet at the time. And they can't make sense of this. And finally, when Lazarus gets his composure back, he looks at Caligula and with all seriousness says, haven't you heard? Death is dead. How do you scare someone who's been dead and personally knows the one that's going to bring him out again? impossible. Friends, Jesus' resurrection is the demonstration that there is a power greater in this universe than death itself, and that's the life-giving power of God. And that's what the resurrection proves. That's why we should want this to be true. If you talk to your friends, you may get stuck on trying to prove it to them why it's true. Maybe you talk to them by why they should want it to be true, because only the resurrection makes sense of this life only the resurrection makes sense of, of why we die, but yet we feel that shouldn't be the end of all things. Only the resurrection can rob you or take away the fear of death and the absurdity of life. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather. That's what the church does. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for the reminder that our lives are not sustained by our own lives, but through the life of Christ. And Father, thank You for the reminder that there was a death paid so that we wouldn't have to pay the debt. We thank You for the life of Christ that we have been looking at, the, the, the saving acts of Christ's life from His incarnation all the way and up through the second coming. There are so many facets to it that impact the way we live. Father, we pray that as we live, that the resurrection reminds us that we, we are a, a glimpse of that resurrected reality now so that the world might see what the hope of the gospel actually looks like lived out amongst us. Father, help us to steward this world because you made it beautiful and good. Help us to be a a, a community of people called called out of the world, called apart, to be witness to this change that you are bringing. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.